the creative person leaves behind a body of work. And in order to create something, whether it's a painting or a movie or a story or a record, you need to shut out the distractions and work with a single-minded purpose and focus on getting this project from your original idea through to the end product. Oxford University. Turn up. Turn out. Plug in. Welcome to episode four of the Oxford University podcast. In today's episode, we have an in-depth conversation with the esteemed Dr. Susan Rogers, engineer for Prince, Bare Naked Ladies, and David Byrne, to name a few. In this interview, we had quite a philosophical discussion about how music influences emotion, the difference between following and engineering your passion, tapping the universal truth, and following the hero's journey. We also talk about the benefit of harnessing limitations and taking a project from vision to the materials. So settle in and enjoy this episode with Dr. Susan Rogers. Interview time. Dr. Susan Rogers, <laughs> I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. So from what I understand, you've looked into the effect of music on the brain and, and memories. What is your earliest musical memory? And what was the spark that sort of began this journey? Um, memories are uh, beastly difficult to study and one of the fascinating things about memory is uh, infantile amnesia. The fact that mm. human beings don't, for the most part, form long-term memories until we're about five years old. Mm. So we might have a flash of something that happened when we were four, but we don't have memories of being earlier than, than age five. It is thought that memory is related to consciousness, that we're not really conscious before the age of five. So before the age of five, we're not really aware that our mind is different from the mind of other people. If a four-year-old, and I am going to answer your question, but if, if a four-year-old is talking to grandma on the phone and grandma's in another city and the four-year-old looks out the window and says, oh, there's a rainbow, grandma, look at the rainbow, she doesn't understand that her experience is different from grandma's experience. That emerges around age five. So to answer your question about earliest musical memories, um, mine would be around age six or so, and that's when the Beatles were just coming to America, and it was very exciting, and the older girls, and the boys too, but mostly the girls on the block were just crazy for the Beatles. And uh, I remember listening to the Beatles and thinking, this is so funny to think this, but kind of thinking, yeah, this is okay, but I've heard better. <laughs> and you don't want to admit that to anyone because the Beatles are, they're the big thing, so you don't want to say that. But what I was thinking and what emerged as the years went by and I got a little bit older was the Beatles was not, that was not the music of me. The music of me that I gravitated toward was when Sly and the Family Stone would come on the radio, or when I'd hear James Brown, or a little bit later when I'd hear that blues-based rock, whether it was the Rolling Stones, or Led Zeppelin, and Buffalo Springfield, Stephen Stills, or Creedence Clearwater, you know, that sense of knowing this is speaking to me. Mm. So those earliest memories were an awareness of 
yeah, I'm going to make up my own mind, I think, for myself as to what I think good is. That's mm -hmm. a cool thing. I'm very mm -hmm. interested in that still, where that comes from. And what part of the brain is it that um, lights up when, when it hears music? Do it's the whole brain. That's why scientists are interested in music perception and cognition, because music listening is, uh, especially music playing, and especially, especially sight reading, that's a full brain workout. So the frontal lobe is where we do executive thinking and categorization and decision making, things like that, and attention and motivation. So music can make you think. It can help you solve problems. We usually bond to music most strongly when we're teenagers, and it's usually through the lyrics because the lyrics tell us how to behave in our little social worlds. Mm. That's what I should have said to that kid. Mm. This is the line I should use if I want to flirt with this person. Like, so, so that would be kind of the frontal lobe and our, where consciousness is residing and helping us figure out our place in the social landscape. But music also is very, very effective at engaging the motor system. Um, sound um, enters into our ears and in the temporal lobe right above our ears is where it's first processed. But there's these really strong connections between the temporal lobe and the motor cortex right above. It's a feedback loop. So music makes us move really easily. And the steady pulse allows us to anticipate when mm. the beat is coming. And meters and bars allow us to anticipate, you know, it's been eight bars. I bet we're going to get a change here. Mm. So we can anticipate what's going to happen so our bodies can be ready and we can be in sync with the signal. But in addition to that, and this is perhaps the greatest mystery, chord changes, melody and harmony affect our limbic system, structures in our limbic system mm -hmm. that cause the release and the reception of certain neurotransmitters that cause us to feel things. And you don't even have to be human for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Music, uh, classical music for example, that doesn't have drums and doesn't have lyrics, is effective at reducing stress in, for example, two-day-old chickens. Two-day-old chickens show a reduction in stress yawns and head shakes and little distress cries. And um, if you take a blood sample, they show a reduction in uh, cortisol and the stress hormones compared to the chickens who were isolated from their little flock and didn't have music. So music does affect us on those older ancient circuits as well as the more advanced cortex area as well as the in-between area of just just moving and synchronizing our muscles to music. Wow, that's fascinating. So maybe we should be introducing like some Beethoven to, to the farms. Could do, the could do, yes. It's not going to hurt anything. No, definitely not. It's not going to hurt anything. I've definitely seen how even plants are affected by certain types of music and the effect on them. Now, you are involved in something called the Music Perception and Cognition Library, or...? It's a laboratory. Uh, it's, um, I'll give you a better description of it. If you walked into the dorm rooms at 270 Com Ave, mm -hmm. uh, my space is uh, otherwise known as the first broom closet on the right. <laughs> It's a tiny little space in the 270 Com Ave building that the college has given me to allow me to do some research. 
Inside that space are two joined together soundproof booths. It's actually where the burn started many years ago in I think 2008. Uh, it, it's just tiny windowless space, but uh, I can, I've got some equipment in there and I can do auditory perception work and have done in my little laboratory space. The equipment that I have there measures the uh, auditory brainstem response. And what that is, is, well, I should back up. The equipment is uh, EEG, which is uh, electro encephalograms. So you can uh, stick the little electrode on your forehead, and that's the ground wire, and you can stick a couple more on the mastoid bones, which are the two hard bones right behind your ear, where the, your skull drops off into your spine, and you stick it, these electrodes there, they're extremely sensitive pickups. Mm. And if you stick on those electrodes and you're wearing earbuds, and you're hearing a signal that is a high enough level, the signal that's passing from your cochlea up through the auditory brainstem and up to the cortex can be read by these electrodes. So what it allows me to measure is the auditory path and its response to sound. And that allows me to see evidence of early onset hearing damage. Mm -hmm. It also lets me see uh, what we know uh, is something that, that's well established, that musicians uh, become auditory athletes, and musicians develop an auditory path that's stronger and thicker and faster and mm. better at processing sound compared to non-musicians. So I can, I can literally watch the signal. I can see the signal coming out of these students' cochleas um, in the first six or seven milliseconds after the signal has arrived. Wow. So is it sort of like a form of biofeedback, being able to... No, because I'm not uh, necessarily... Uh, manipulating the okay. response. So biofeedback would involve let me change what you're hearing and see how your response to it changes. Mm. That's the feedback loop. Yeah. This is a mere passive recording of what your brain is doing when it's processing sound. But the early, early stage of processing, not any cognition or thinking, just it would be just the input stages on a black box device. Mm. Like if we took an audio signal, plugged it into the input connectors in the back of a black box, and then measured the signal just coming out of the transformer, the first transformer, the first processing stage that it receives, if we measured that signal and sent it on its way to the other circuits, the circuits that would cause this box to be a reverb or a delay or a compressor, whatever it is this box does, mm. we're looking at the input signal, that's what I'm looking at in our Berkeley student musicians. And what, have you noticed like a different effect from different styles? Have you experimented with different kinds of music and um, the effect that they have on students' brains? I have not looked at music yet. Uh, that wasn't the focus of my study. The focus of my last study was early onset hearing damage. My um, hypothesis was that our drummers and perhaps our guitar players might be at greatest risk for mm. early onset hearing damage. Drums being obviously so loud, electric guitars tend to be played really, really loud. And that's not what I found. In uh, the data that I collected, I actually found that our horn players and perhaps our vocalists appear to be at greatest risk. Mm. 
I have come to understand from talking to, to musicians um, and from kind of figuring it out a little bit, it's not so much the loudness of your instrument as it is the proximity of the instrument to your ear. Mm -hmm. Air is going to offer you a little bit of a pad. So you're sitting in a drum kit. The snare drum that you hit, the cymbal that you hit, is at least a couple of feet away mm. from your ears. Whereas if you're in a horn section, as one student put it, he said, the bell of some guy's horn is right next to my ear. We also see with violinists, we see that if they're right-handed, that left ear suffers hearing damage. The right ear doesn't. The, the strings are right up there. Mm. right up there next to your ear. And vocalists in choirs, as you know, voices can get really, really loud, mm. and singers are, are at risk because that sound is so close to their ears. Mm. Have you collaborated with the music therapy department of the school, or is that something that is of interest to you in the field of music therapy? No, it's of interest to... Um, music and health, but the music music therapists have a specific mandate, and that is to use music um, as a palliative treatment mm. for distress mm. or as a restorative treatment for people who uh, are in stressful circumstances. So their mandate is a little bit different than just the bare bones hearing health. Um, what you were saying earlier about regenerative hair cells, that's not possible yet. Right. It, I, well, I kind of misspoke. They are doing some of that work in petri dishes. Um, they're doing it in mice with stem cell research. But when a hair cell dies, it's dead. Mm -hmm. Hair cells, unlike other cells in the body, hair cells don't reproduce. So we're born with about 3,500 inner hair cells that do most of the work of sending the signal up the chain, and we've got about 12,000 outer hair cells. Mm -hmm. And the outer hair cells uh, act as, they help us focus on what it is we're, we're listening to, just like how the pupil in your eye will dilate or narrow when you're exposed to different amounts of light. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the inner hair cells do most of the work, and when they're dead, they're gone. Mm. and they can be killed from too much noise exposure. Mm. What noise therapy does in reducing tinnitus is not restore the inner ear where the hair cells reside. What it helps to do is some rewiring up here in the cortex. So when your, let's call them wires, but it's really a bundle of 30,000 auditory nerves on each side, when this bundle of auditory nerves leaves your cochlea, it goes a distance of about 25-26 millimeters right up here above your ears to the temporal lobe. And it dumps that signal, those 30,000 wires dump that signal into your auditory cortex right on the superior temporal gyrus there. And then your cortex has to deal with it, has to figure out how loud it is and what pitch you might be listening to and has to send information to your motor cortex. Should I move to this, to your hippocampus? Should I remember this, to your frontal lobe? What do I think about this? To the occipital lobe in the back, can I picture this? Is, is that Jimmy Page I'm hearing? <laughs> so it, goes, it spreads out from there. When you have tinnitus, a damaged hair cell in the inner ear can send a false signal down the bundle of wires mm. that then terminates at the temporal lobe and causes you the to ringing. perceive a ringing 
with no physical source, a ringing that isn't there. And the little damaged hair cell, because it's damaged, is causing your metabolism to crank up the gain so that you can hone in on it and hear mm. it better. Mm. What noise therapy does is it sends a signal that's just off resonance, just off your tinnitus frequency, mm. to get your brain to think that a frequency just higher or just lower than that aversive one is the one you should be paying attention to. And it diverts neural resources from the temporal lobe at 30, let's say at 3K, it will divert those resources over to 3.1K mm. or 2.9K. Mm. So we're pulling neural resources away from that sensitive spot so that you don't mm. notice it anymore. That's moderately effective. Moderately effective. Uh, there are other treatments that are coming and a lot of research is being done on tinnitus therapy because so many people suffer from it. Mm. Wow, this is really fascinating. I've heard things like drinking like um uh, not go to color certain herbal teas which uh -huh. are helpful um oxytocin na nasal spray really oxytocin is it's sometimes called the love hormone or the cuddle hormone mm. and that's a little bit of a misnomer <laughs> number but that hormone is released when we're in love mm. when we see our sweetheart for the, usually for the first three years mm. uh we release oxytocin when our sweetheart comes in the door. And then after three years, your body stops releasing that oxytocin. But by that point, most couples are kind of Bonded. invested. Yeah, yeah, they're invested in each other's relationships. They share an apartment. Mm. They have friends and they have a routine that they share. They're bonded, right? As you said. So if couples have bonded by that three-year mark, they tend to stay together. And if they haven't, by the time that oxytocin wears off, they're ready to move on. Anyway, it's also released, especially released when mothers give birth. It helps them bond to their babies. But oxytocin in a nasal spray shot up the nose, like any other nasal spray, can help reduce the severity of tinnitus symptoms. Wow. Yeah, that paper came out in 2017. <coughs> there's, there's new work out there. And as I mentioned before, in vitro, in the Petri dish, mm. there's some work that is... Um, growing new hair cells to allow them to be implanted in the cochlea to take the place of mm. those killed hair cells. It's coming. Wow, it's it's so fascinating following the signal flow back from your brain and as you described uh, the interpretation of signals through these tiny hairs and what is um, cognized as yes. music Yeah, and I think it's it's really fascinating how deep you've gone um, scientifically with all of this because I think study, one of the things from studying production and engineering is like with anything that originally seems like magic, I guess, mm -hmm. before you get into it. And then you start to sort of peek behind the scenes and how producers and songwriters can... Uh, manipulate emotions with the right chords, as you say, with harmony and the the, the lift that can be provided mm. in a chord change or a B section. Um, how, how do you, as a producer, um, I know you'd be familiar with this concept of prosody, like um, mm -hmm. um, how would, how do you draw out the meaning of the song so you can best translate 
that into a visceral yeah. uh, feeling and experience when people are listening to records that you've made. I'm so glad you asked about that because I know some of our teachers in MP&E talk with students about building emotion into music. I want to be really clear because I'm a scientist, we use our words carefully. Music doesn't have emotion. Listeners do. Mm. You can't build emotion into music because it's like it, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel emotions. Music expresses feelings. It can mm. express what, what what feelings the composer had or the performer had, but that doesn't mean that the listener is going to feel it. Mm. As we say in the sciences, in order to be effective, a stimulus needs a suitable receptor. Mm. So the best food you've ever eaten in your life isn't necessarily the best food. If you're starving, Eddie Murphy has a routine about this, a comedy routine, if you're really hungry, a Ritz cracker is going to be the best thing you've ever tasted because your appetite is primed, you're highly receptive to flavors. And if you're not hungry, it's very unappetizing. So our what we do with music is we self-medicate we ingest and consume the music that we need to as i was mentioning earlier maybe solve a problem i need a singer to tell me what to think i need somebody who's smarter than me to be singing to me right now or to get us to feel a certain groove to to increase our resting arousal rate to pump us up sometimes people will listen to music in the morning to help them start their day or to calm us down and take us in the opposite direction to at the end of the night you want something maybe calming and relaxing or meditative uh, we will sometimes listen to music to match our moods or to change our moods so the record producer's job is to listen to the skeleton of the song the skeleton meaning the chord changes, the melody, the harmony, the lyrics. This is the skeleton. This is how this song goes. So you play it on piano or play it on guitar and decide how to make a record out of it. We cannot, with any predictive ability, say this record is going to cause people to feel this. Mm. If they don't like our music, they're not going to listen and they're not going to feel anything. One man's ceiling is another man's floor. If I were, uh, maybe someday will come and I'll be 99 years old and I'll be in a hospital and I'll be on my deathbed and it'll be my last days and the music therapist is going to come in and, and the music therapist is, oh, poor old lady, let me play you a little song and help you feel better. And if they start playing some stupid shit, some, <laughs> some folk music that I don't like, I'm going to be like, where's the water jug? Get out of here. Maybe... What I'll feel like hearing in that moment, maybe it's hardcore. Maybe it'll be hardcore, because mm. hardcore feels good to me. Yeah. It makes me feel good. Yeah. I like it. Maybe that would you know, give me another day or two to live, because <laughs> it, would, it yeah. would be exciting. It's what I want. Mm. So one person's poison will be another person's remedy. Mm. That's very important for record makers to understand. You don't have control, producer over what other people are going to feel. Mm -hmm. What you have control over is what you feel. So let's assume that there will be enough people who feel like you, and let's make a record that you think is moving and is evocative or provocative, that is, uh, that is effective as a stimulus. Just like a chef 
will make a sauce or a soup or something, a meal, that he or she thinks, this tastes pretty good. Mm. I'm, I'm liking it. Mm. To some people, it'll be too bland, other people too spicy. Mm. But it works for you. So that's what you do. You, 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 you try to medicate yourself in the studio by pulling performances out of people and by, by uh, manipulating their window of attention. Mm. We are constantly worried that our listeners will get bored and tune out. But musicians here at Berkeley tend to overshoot the mark and tend to put in too many chord changes in order to uh, keep their listeners from getting bored. And actually what they're doing is they're just becoming cognitively taxing. It's tiresome. Mm. So the producer's job is to help the musicians hear their music the way a non-musician would, the way the average listener would, and help them to understand when, that, when something is too much, when something is not enough. Mm. That's fascinating. It's almost like a cultural or emotional prerequisite in order to digest or understand the music and sort of what, back to biofeedback, almost like the, the producer is uh, the person receiving that information back from the mix and how it's making them feel. And then that might be an idea of how it gets perceived, but not necessarily. Yes, and I like that you mentioned biofeedback because this is a bit more applicable. Of course, our feelings can't change the music as it's been recorded already, but what we can do is reach for that radio dial or reach for that pause button Mm. on anything we happen to be listening to if something strikes us as, I am so not into this right now and I want to change it to something else. Mm. So I suppose that's kind of a feedback. we uh, we record producers are are the first listener. That's what we do for a living. I've considered myself since I began at this at the age of twenty one. I'm a professional listener. That's what I do. That's what I'm good at. It's not been explored yet by scientists, but I believe that there is an aspect of musicality that involves just listening. I think there is an art to listening. Mm. And I think record producers are especially good at it. It's what they do for a living. Mm. So as a teacher, how have you noticed being in this age, you, you kind of touched on it, of short attention spans, of content being more and more sort of jam-packed into a shorter amount of time, and maybe this tendency to fill all the spaces all the time and maybe the cultural impact of something like hip-hop that has a lot of rapid-fire words and a lot of information and sometimes not enough time to digest um, the content of that. Um, How have you perceived that generational change um, amongst up-and-coming engineers and producers in this field? I think this generation of record makers has challenges that my generation didn't have, and among them are what you just mentioned, competition for resources. A hundred years ago, people listened to music in the room with the musician, and if you weren't in the room where the musician was playing, you didn't have music, unless you made it yourself. Once recorded music came along, 
we could be in a separate room from the musician and we could be listening to music. But I was just um, having a, an exchange with the psychoacoustic students that I teach at the Berkeley Online Master's Degree program. We were just talking about that. Um, when I was young, in my teens and in my 20s, active listening was a thing to do. So music listening was an entertainment goal in and of itself. Mm. People would come over to your house to listen to records. You'd go to their place to listen to records. And what that meant was you might have food or you'd have a beer or something like that. You put a record on and you sit and you listen. Mm -hmm. And you might say something about it in between songs, but listening was the entertainment. And then Like a television. Like. Yeah, that you, you listen to records. Now, uh, admittedly, it was mostly the real music lovers that did this, but most people loved music. This is what people did. And so you've got 17 minutes on a side, and you flip that record over, and for the next 17 minutes you listen to side B, or maybe you put a different record on. We listened to music. For me, as an up-and-coming record maker, it was a nightly event. After dinner, that's what you do. You sit down and you listen to a record as you're digesting your meal. Today's record makers are having to contend with the fact that music is increasingly being used as the backdrop or the accompaniment to other forms of entertainment. So what you do is you play a video game and music is there accompanying the video game. Or you watch a movie or you, I don't know, surf the internet or whatever it is you do and you'll have music on in the background as you're pursuing another form of entertainment. Mm. That means if the function of music has changed, the ideal form must also change. When it was in the foreground, its form could have a lot of things that distracted you, such as dynamic loudness changes, or unexpected chord changes, or uh, things that would make you want to get up and dance. But when its function is to not bother you, not disturb you, not disrupt you, just give you a little bit of mood, its form is going to change. This is why I believe we've seen the rise and in popularity of techno and EDM. It's pretty effective at that because they're playing with your sense of time. They know you're not paying attention. So their music can gently, gradually, slowly morph through its changes to get you to feel something without even really a conscious awareness that it was the music that did that. All you know is that you feel good when this music is playing. Mm. It's pretty great how they do that. Mm. Uh, music's form will change. What we value in music will, will shift. What doesn't shift so rapidly is human beings. We still have the same sorts of attention spans. It's just that um, we are tempted to not exercise the um, ability to pay attention. Mm. We're very tempted to be distracted. But it doesn't follow that we have to be. Mm. Um, people are still capable of monomaniacal focus on writing a song or writing a record or writing a book and getting something done. Mm. And those who choose to do will be the ones who make all the money, as Prince would have said. Mm. It, it, it takes some self-discipline. Just like we have the self-discipline to eat or eat properly or work out or mm. whatever it is to keep ourselves healthy, we can do that mentally as well. Yeah, it seems like in today's society, sort of multitasking is glorified because it's about productivity and doing things constantly. Oh, and I can tell you, multitasking is um, 
it's it's harmful to productivity. Uh, studies in, of schizophrenia will show you that the difference between the schizophrenia, the schizophrenic, and the artistic genius, is that they both have great original ideas. They think of brand new things that haven't been thought of before, but the schizophrenic doesn't have the attention span to actually build something. Mm -hmm. The definition of creativity involves productivity, making something useful. You're not considered creative if you don't make anything. The creative person leaves behind a body of work. And in order to create something, whether it's a painting or a movie or a story or a record, you need to shut out the distractions and work with a single-minded purpose and focus on getting this project from your original idea through to the end product mm -hmm. to build something, mm -hmm. make something. Multitasking certainly works against that. Just a cursory glance at the logic of it uh, shows you that that is true. The great creative people have that ability. Think of Tiger Woods on golf or any of the great athletes. They, they, I'm thinking of Prince right now because he was my boss for many years and he was highly, 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 highly creative. Mm -hmm. His alone time was precious to him and he did one thing at a time, not ten things at a time. Mm. And they do say that genius is forged in solitude. Um, I think it's, it is a symptom of our generation. I mean, people watch Netflix whilst also on their phone scrolling social media. I am not on any social media platform. I, uh, I don't think I'm sure. I'm not really sure what Instagram is, but I think I know. I've never sent a tweet. I do not have a Facebook account. I do not participate in, in that because I don't necessarily want to know what everyone is doing. Mm. It's too much information for me. What I want to know is what are the really clever people doing. Mm. makes me sound like a snob, but let me explain. I want ideas and works of art and works of science that have been curated and vetted through a system so that when I do take the time to consume these ideas, I know it's going to be good. Mm. I like reading the New York Times. My homepage on my browser is the New York Times, and I see the headlines, and when I see a, 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 maybe an editorial that I'm interested in and I know the writer's name, I'm going to click on it, and I'm going to see, here's what this writer has to say about this topic. I want my ideas vetted through a system so I know that I'm consuming something good. This isn't a conscious decision. Mm -hmm. It just happens to be what I like. But when I read the book reviews and the movie reviews and things like that, I'm looking for, all right, what's good? What's good out there? Mm. What's the best of the best? Because mm. I want to consume just the best. I want to be great. I think we all do. Mm. Since I was young, I've thought to myself, I want to do something great. Mm. I want to be great. So when I consume ideas, I want them to be great ideas mm. so that I can follow what those folks are doing. Mm. That's awesome, and I really agree with your statements there. I've, I've heard you say in some previous interviews that Prince went to these deep places in himself or anybody great, the, the geniuses who have left behind a timeless legacy in their works, as you say, have gone on the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. They've gone yes. deeply within themselves and had that alone time and that, that flow, that state. And I'd be interested in knowing um, under the under the microscope what that uh, brain waves mm. are doing in that state but I would like to come back to that and just say 
for for young people, for these young people in this next generation of distraction and multitasking, how does how do you go to that place? How do you find that place in your in yourself to 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 strive mm. to that level of greatness of Allah Prince? Well, I can tell you a little bit about it, and then I can tell you what the mystery is and what we don't know. From personal experience and from listening to the experiences of the many musicians I've worked with over the years, the capacity to be in touch with one's own psyche starts with listening to it. It will talk to you if you listen to it. So let's think about this for a second. In the early days of human beings, we had to solve a lot of problems. Food, shelter, temperature. We had to keep our bodies warm or cool. We had to stay out of the elements, and we had to make sure we had enough to eat every single day, because we pretty much have to eat every single day. So humans spent the early part of their existence solving these problems. In this modern era, solved. We're sitting in a windowless room right now, but we have light. Uh, it's freezing cold outside, but we're not freezing cold. And, and we will have food today. It's readily available. So all those problems have been solved, which means we've got a lot of brain power left over that doesn't have to worry about solving big, important problems. So what do we do with our brains? Uh, there are manufacturers of product out there who would love to tell you what to do with your brain. They would love to tell you, listen to this, read this, buy this, go here, do that, be this, be that. And many of us fall into the temptation of saying, okay, and just doing whatever they suggest we do, because they're very persuasive and because the subtext is, you'll love it. It'll be great. It'll make your life better. But remember when you were a little kid and remember the amount of time you would spend just staring at the back of that cereal box while you were having your breakfast? Do you remember the amount of time you would, as a little kid, stare at the pattern, let's say, on your bedspread, or a poster on your wall, or the curtains or whatever? Just stare at it? What's happening? That's a little brain on input, and just consuming to let new information take root in his or her little brain. Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood knew this, knew the pace at which children like to think and consume, and his show was slow, but he had a jazz pianist, Johnny Costa, there, because he also knew the kids are really smart. Anyway, what we need to do in order to be in touch with that place in our psyche is to give our poor little brains a rest and stop bombarding them with stimuli. Just daydream. Go to the arboretum, go to the park, go to the fence, not at night. Uh, go, go somewhere safe or just sit in your room. Just sit and let your brain go out and play. Don't give it anything to do. No problems to solve, no nothing. Just. Do whatever it wants to do. Let it let it daydream. Let it just freaking sit. And don't solve any problems. Just let it daydream. I'm not talking about meditation, which is the art of clearing your mind. I'm talking about just sitting, just you and your brain. Just sit down. 
watch the air go by. What's going to happen is your brain may go to a problem it needs to solve. Don't let it do that. Tell it, you know, not, not now, not now, not now. I'll, I'll come back to that. This is fun time now. If you get good at letting your brain go out to play, the place where it plays is who you are. That's you. That's your psyche. Now, unfortunately for some folks, that may be some old trauma or some old memories. What that's telling you is, I need you. It's your mind saying, I, I need you to fix this for me. We, we've got to work on this because it's, it's there and it's bugging me. Okay, well then get to work and, and get to fixing it. But it may, if you're lucky, say, you know what's really fun? I really like... And it can be anything from piano playing to saxophone playing, which isn't that much of a stretch, to uh, I really like writing, I really like uh, watching hockey, I, whatever it is, it's telling you who you are. Listen to it. Just let it do its thing. My brain, my fantasies when I was young, uh, was always about the recording studio, but not on this side of the glass where we are right now. We're in the performance space of the studio. My fantasies were always on the other side. My fantasies involved, in some capacity, being there while musicians were making music, and in some capacity helping. That that was those were my daydreams until I was about 35, 36 years old, and then my daydreams shifted, and I started thinking of the natural world and consciousness in other species, in non-human animals, and my fantasies now, instead of being in a control room, were in a laboratory. Mm. So I pursued that so that I could, so that my body could be doing what my mind was doing anyway. I so I could be in my happy place. So somebody would pay me to be in my happy place, and that worked out. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't known what my happy place was. And your happy place, let it reveal itself to you. It's in you. It's mm. not out there in the world. It's not in what you're going to watch or what you're going to consume or what your friends are going to tell you. It's, it's the tree that's growing inside you. Just sit under it. Wow. Dropping knowledge today. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dr. Susan. Uh-huh. Um, it, something about that reminded me of this... Um, talk that Steve Jobs gave to a bunch of graduating students and he said follow like it, it's sort of a cliche but follow your passion he said he was going to college and really not into the subjects that he was studying and then one day he sort of had this epiphany like I'm just going to go to the classes that I like mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm interested in typography but something in me just is really into that. Yes. So I'm going to go to that class. He found the schedule um, of lectures, and he was like, all right, I'm going to go to this and this and this. And he didn't know where it was leading, but when he was making the Mac computer, one of the things that really stood out was it was beautiful. It looked, it just didn't look like ones and O's because of he'd studied typography and um, he made like... Um, l- images for things um it all fed in Mm. and i think that speaks to what you're saying that um within that silence and i think there's always this need to want to fill up space fill up space and maybe not being fully centered and comfortable in oneself just to to rest and maybe uncomfortable thoughts come up but 
that's part of life mm. too. We don't need to fill every nook and cranny mm-hmm. up with something. Yes. And I think that's really beautiful advice to strip back a lot of that just because we have all of this technology and a, a new a new sort of study has come out that you should let your children be bored oh yes like there's like this real stigma like yes. don't, oh you can't be bored that's the worst thing you could ever do so good i'm so glad to hear this it's in those quiet moments that children just sit and think and i am so fortunate that I had enough time as a child to sit and think because it taught me who I am. And uh, I, I feel so lucky that I wasn't forced to constantly be busy and involved in activities. Mm. That they, they let me be myself. Uh, I want to comment on two things that you said. Following your passion is one thing. Engineering your passion, mm. however, is necessary if you're going to be a Steve Jobs or a prince or just someone who's a kind of a mere mortal. You need to, like for example, the, the difference between following your passion and engineering your passion has to do with the Venn diagram, the overlap of your strengths and your motives. So following your passion implies that whatever it is you're motivated to do, should go do that. Mm. But engineering your passion means that you might not be good at it. You might want to rethink this. So we need to assess what our motives are. What do we want? What excites us? What would feel really good to do? Mm. But then you have to assess what your strengths are. What kind of thinker are you? And then see if you can make a living out of the Venn diagram, the overlap of what you're good at matches what you want to do. So in my fantasy mind, this is almost a daily thing, in my fantasy mind, I imagine what it would be like to be a great jazz piano player. What I wouldn't give to sit down at piano and be able to go into that zone and be a great jazz piano player. In my fantasy mind, I've done all kinds of great things. I'm an athlete. Oh, look at me, I'm surfing, or whatever it is that people do. I have very little ability, well, no ability, really, to, to play piano at all, and, and I have practically no co- physical coordination. I'm not an athlete. But what I am, and what I do is, I'm really good at, at understanding systems. I'm, I have an engineering mind. I build things. I'm not a visionary. I'm not an artistic creator. I'm I'm an engineer. Just as Steve Wozniak was an engineer to Steve Jobs. Mm. So when when you think of something that would be fun and exciting, you also have to assess what you're capable of doing and see if you can't take your abilities, your strengths, and match those to what needs to be done and what would feel good to do. Mm. That's very, very important. Mm. And, and it, I think what you're talking about is the natural predisposition um, that individuals have towards um, certain skills and then mastering those skills. Like Alan Watts says, everything in this world that we experience and consume has had to have a skill behind it, mm-hmm. even a glass of whiskey, you know, to get that, um, it to age in the barrel for the right amount of time, 
the knowledge that's gone into that and right. been cultivated in order to do something. Great point. And, and you can't just have a, a vision um, without having the vocabulary or tools to articulate yes. what that is. And I think in this generation that wants everything so rapidly drives through American Idol, overnight success, that there isn't this idea that we're taught in schools that things really uh, are going to take a lot of time and personal investment to get there, but that's the most rewarding kind because you are engineering the path of the soul through that and becoming so unique and skilled in your area that as you are, you are sought out rather than seeking opportunities. Mm, mm. You almost become so great that you're in a field of your own. Mm. There was a lecture that I heard in grad school, uh, and the lecturer was Bill Verplank from Silicon Valley. He's an older gentleman, and he's a professor emeritus at Stanford. He's credited with being one of the inventors of the computer mouse. So he's been around computers since the 60s. And he gave this incredible lecture that I now give to my 461 students in the advanced production class, and it involves archetypes, archetypal thinkers. Mm. The examples that Bill Verplank used were Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, and Paul Allen. And he's talking about what kind of mind you have, and where this lecture is useful to people about to graduate is to help them to recognize what kind of mind they have, what kind of thinker are you, so that you can build your creative team with people who don't think like you. A lot of us beginners will want to make the mistake of building a team of people who are just like us. Mm. That's foolish. You don't need another you. You think like you. Get someone who doesn't think like you. Anyway, the archetypes that he talks about are the artist, and Bill Verplank used Steve Jobs as the perfect artist, archetype, visionary. I'm not that type of thinker. Prince was. My friends Tommy Jordan and Greg Kirsten, they were that type. I'm not that kind of thinker. When an artist has an idea, that artist, like a Steve Jobs, let's say, will have an image in his mind's eye of a personal computer that is beautiful. But to actually build it, he needs a different type of thinker. Mm. And that archetype is the engineer. That's my type. Mm. Those are my people. We engineers take the visions of others and we look at systems and how the wires go together, or doctors look at how the knee bone is connected to the shin bone, and you understand how the, the, the parts and, and the fuel that is necessary to build a working prototype or to build a record mm. that your artist is thinking of. Mm. But once you've built these things, you've got another problem. You need to sell this product. Artists mm. tend to not be salespeople. Engineers sure as hell aren't because we don't understand people that well in social relationships. We understand math and physics and science. They need another archetype, and that other archetype would be the entrepreneur, the mm. person who sells things, the person who is social and who understands human relationships and what people want. But there's more. There's a fourth archetype, because you take all three of these people together, they're still going to be at the end of the line unless they have one more archetype on the team, and that archetype is the competitor, the bully. That's the person who wants to be first in line and sell more product than anyone else. Mm. And uh, Bill Verplank talked about Apple Computer and he talked about Microsoft and he talked about the bullies on those teams. 
that made sure that they ruled the marketplace. Artistic folks tend to not want to surround themselves with those people. Big mistake. Big mistake. Any artist who reaches the top of his or her field is going to have somewhere on the team someone who wants to sell some records, whether that's your record label or maybe it's your manager, maybe it's someone in the band, and maybe it's you yourself, because Prince certainly was uh, as, as gifted as an artist can be, but he was also highly competitive. Every, every artist who's been at the top of the charts has either been a competitor or had someone on his or her team who was. These things are important. Um, this is what I mean when I say understanding what kind of thinker you are, what your strengths are, mm. and what you want. Certain things would be beyond my reach. I could not be a record executive because I don't have those entrepreneurial skills. I couldn't be a music business manager because I don't have those competitive skills. It's simply not in me. Mm. But what I can do is I can help artists make things. Uh, I'm an engineering type. And as a scientist, what I can do is I can, I can analyze and synthesize information. That's what I do. Mm. I'm good with data. I want to make my little contribution based on what I naturally do. That makes a lot of sense, and it relates to your original point about engineering your passion, that you have these innate things that you're trying to draw out to the surface, and then not trying to be something that you're not is finding your people to help everyone can be a little puzzle or yes, part of the patchwork exactly to bring that out and I, I get reminded of like George Martin in the studio with John Lennon and John Lennon says I want this gu guitar to sound like an orange and and then George Martin has to be like well what does he actually mean by yes. that is it is, is this a tonal characteristic is this a type of distortion you know you have somebody so logically cool. uh, processing that um it's so cool. Tell me, how do you think, what does it sound like? What would you do to make a guitar, an electric guitar sound like an orange? What would you do? Um, I think it's a form of fuzz distortion. I think it's accentuated around 4K, but it's not brittle. It's quite warm and sweet texturally. Isn't it cool how we have notions of what we do? Yeah. I was thinking of a tone that was basically clean with a little bit of distortion because I was thinking of an orange as kind of juicy and tangy. Okay, yeah. It's, you know, it, it, it quenches your thirst, but it's got that, as you, you mentioned, 4K. It's got a little bite to mm. it, but it's got a little sweetness to it, too. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not crisp like an apple. Isn't that, fu <laughs> isn't that funny, though? Yeah. But the, that's, that is, that's what engineers do, mm. and that's, to some extent, what producers do, too. We take, we help artists express their vision mm. by taking it out of their heads and making it reality. As Bill Verplank said, a Steve Jobs might go to Steve Wozniak and say, I want this piece, this new computer to do this, 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 and this. And Steve Wozniak will say, the first thing I can do, the second thing is going to take some time, but I can do it. The third thing defies the laws of physics and cannot be done. And the fourth thing, yeah, it can be done, but it's going to cost you. Just just doing the math, crunching mm. the numbers of, to tell an artist whether or not this vision is possible and mm. what it's going to take to get us there. And in some ways, make, making quantum leaps in the process like something sometimes the visionary has an idea which might be impossible at the time and then the the engineers have to be geniuses 
creative geniuses of sorts to transcend the thinking that it took to create it. I think Buckminster Fuller said a problem can't be solved uh, with the same rationale that it took to... Einstein. Einstein Einstein said said a problem cannot be solved by the same consciousness that created it. Mm. We need other people. Um, You had mentioned earlier, and I wanted to return to this point, artists who have their solitude and who go to that place in their psyche, what Joseph Campbell wrote about in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, who are capable of going to that place in their psyche in order to be creative. Um, Joseph Campbell wrote about the hero's journey, and he wrote about myths, mythology. He wrote about stories that appeal to everyone, archetypal truths. He, uh, at the time of his popularity in the 1980s, he talked about George Lucas and Star Wars, but Joseph Campbell is, is right in that the hero's journey, the stories that we love, usually involve a person at home minding their own business. Think of the, the hobbit who's in the Shire, mm. or think of Harry Potter, Harry Potter minding his own business, or I don't, I'm not too familiar with the Star Wars, but anyway, it's, a, it's someone who's minding his own business, and a wise person comes along and says, you've been chosen, you have to go on a journey. You have these special traits or characteristics, and you have to, you're the one who has to save us all by throwing the ring into the volcano or whatever it is you have to do. You have to do this. Mm-hmm. So the hero has to leave his comfortable home. It's usually a guy, sometimes it's a girl, but usually he has to leave his comfortable home. Often he'll have a companion along the way, but no one else can do this for him. Mm-hmm. He will have guides he'll meet along the way who will give him some sage advice, maybe a Dumbledore or someone like that. But no one can do this but him. So he goes and he slays the dragon, or he kills the bad guy, and then, then he comes home. But when he comes home, He realizes he's changed forever, and home has changed forever. He'll never be the same. So Joseph Campbell described the creative person, the writer's journey, the same way. In order to write a story that resonates with everyone, I've never thrown a ring into a volcano, I've never slayed a dragon, but I love those stories because I I resonate with them. Mm. We, 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 We understand we can put ourselves in the place of the hero. So if the writer is going to go to that place in his or her psyche, they have to go so deep into the well of creativity that they've tapped into and brought back up into consciousness what Campbell calls the universal truth, what is true for all of us. George Lucas did it with Star Wars, and J.K. Rowling did it with Harry Potter, and someone who writes a great song, let's take it from my generation, Brian Wilson, who wrote In My Room mm-hmm. when he was a teenager, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, writes a song that everyone can relate to. And everyone, as we started by saying, can have the response of, this is the music of me. This is me. So Brian Wilson, as a teenager, wrote, there's a world where I can go and tell my secrets to in my room, do my crying and my sighing, laugh at yesterday. What teenager hasn't experienced needing to be alone in his or her room? Maybe just crying or daydreaming. In My Room is one of the most beautiful pop songs ever written. That's tapping the universal truth. Um, People who write songs that are smash hits with everyone typically do this. Uh, It's one thing to do it once, but only the greatest of the greats can do this repeatedly. But as Campbell writes, going going to that mountain and throwing that ring in, killing that that evil villain, 
going deep into your psyche means going to a dark and dangerous place, going deep into your psyche. It also means that you're probably going to come back scarred. The people who are the most creative are typically scarred for having gone on this journey so often and so easily. Brian Wilson certainly is, has had his issues with mental health. Folks that I know, like Prince, is one of them. And I'll mention Tommy Jordan from Geggy Talk, because he's one of the most creative people I've ever worked with. Yes. Uh, they are capable of writing these songs and, and harmed. Not unlike The Hobbit, I think it was Frodo was his name, uh, or Harry Potter, or these others who have to go to this dark place, or who just, who just do. So those of us who don't go deep into our psyches will write only about ourselves. And that will be the autobiographical lyrics of, oh, yeah, I went to the prom and I bought this dress and I had new shoes and oh, and then, then we kissed and oh, it was magical. You're telling the story of yourself. Mm. That doesn't mean anything to me. I, 40, it's been 40 years since I've been to a prom. Well, I actually never went to a prom, so, so I, I don't relate to you. But if you can write a great lyric, you can make me feel like what it feels like to be a 20-year-old guy or to be a different gender or a different race, to have grown up under very different circumstances. If you've tapped that universal truth, I'll relate to it. Mm. So you're going so far internally that it becomes... Everyone. Everyone. It becomes the, the archetypal truth. The, the, that's the power of myth. These are the stories, that we, the stories that we do pass on, the songs that we do love, the things that become iconic are songs not about the artist, they're about us. Mm. Prince understood that. And Prince used to say it, too. He, he used to say about his fans, it's not me they're interested in. It's themselves. And he was smart enough at a very young age to realize that. They're not coming to see me. They're coming to see themselves. I'm serving as a mirror for a part of their psyche that they'd like to be, but aren't. You might think to yourself, I'd like to be that bold lyrically. I'd like to be that athletic. I'd like to and be able to dance like that. I'd like to be that gifted on guitar. When I watch you, I'm going to pretend that I am. You're a template for me, for mm. my fantasies. Well, what I love about um, <clears throat> what I've heard about your classes is that Pro Tools is out of the picture and that it's so much about like listening, that type of active listening and, you know, what... I loved about mix one mm. was that I realized I'd been looking at my mix for mm -hmm. so long and I started listening right. to the mix. Danger, so, danger, danger in that looking. Yeah. I'm loving more and more limitations oh, in my yeah. creative practices. <clears throat> yeah. And the more you can just take off the table, like, okay, we're just, we've got oh, eight tracks to work with or. Right. Now, in Tommy Jordan talks about it. In the early days of record making, the vast majority of people went from the materials to the vision. Mm. Uh, in this day and age, because the tools are so cheap, for the first time ever we can go from the vision to the materials. But <clears throat> in the early days it would be like, okay, we've got this studio, this many tracks, this much time, these writers, these players, whether we're talking Motown or we're talking Stax in Memphis or we're talking about the Philly sound, Sigma sound, or we're talking about uh, Fame Studios down there in Muscle Shoals. We're talking about here are our people, our players, our writers, our performers, our engineers, our studio. Here's our materials. What can we make? 
mm. with these tools. And they cranked out the hit records of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, from the materials to the vision. What separated them from everyone else uh, is that the materials were expensive. Mm. It cost a lot of money to get into a recording studio. You pretty much had to have a record deal to get into a recording studio. And these people were highly specialized. You had these session musicians and these hit writers. Now, the tools are cheap and accessible. If you've got an iPhone, you could probably bring up an app that would allow you to make a recording on your iPhone, and many, many people do. So now that everybody has the materials and that they can pitch correct and time correct those materials to make it sound like you really know what you're doing, now what is separating people is the vision, because mm. everyone has the same materials. Mm -hmm. So it's those with the best vision uh, who will rule the music business uh, coming up. Of course, the materials are still going to count, but your competition is nipping right at your heels because mm. there isn't this wall between you and them now. So anyway, I, I, we need the good visionary thinkers now more than ever. Well, I think it's um, something that I was going to ask you about was like um, that obviously you get over this hurdle of your 10,000 hours. You get through the experience and like... You basically get an idea for all of the variables that are involved relatively problem solving things going wrong and then you get this sort of familiarity with that and then it seems like the classic records that were made with a little bit of time constraints and like you say resource mm -hmm, constraints mm -hmm. something about that I feel like brings out this this flow state or open for the muse to enter or for these happy accidents to happen right. in the studio that don't, they're not calculated. It's just one yeah. thing leading to another and riding that momentum and something being very cohesive about what is made through that rather than, as you say, finding, trying to sift through all this noise and right. find something, um, that has some kind of structure um, yeah. to it. Pressure can fuel creativity. Too much of it can destroy it. Mm. Uh, in the old days of mixing, whenever I mixed anyway, uh, in the, which was the old days, I couldn't leave the room or go home until the mix was done. And mm. it had to be commercial and it had to be great because the mix lived on the surface of the console, not like in the box. So. The pressure of that sometimes was unbelievable mm. if the mix wasn't working for reasons maybe beyond your control. Maybe the performance wasn't good enough. Maybe the song wasn't the good recording. enough. Maybe the producer didn't mm. do a good enough job. Maybe the recording, recording wasn't good. Big deal. It's your problem now. Mm. Get me a commercial competitive mix by the time the clock runs out on this room because mm. there's another client coming in. Uh, that pressure was extraordinary. Uh, we learned how to work within the constraints of, of that, of mm. time and pressure and um, limited resources. It, uh, it, it fueled us. And many people, it broke them. And many of us actually kind of liked it a little bit. Mm. Nowadays, there's so much music. Everyone with a laptop can make beats or throw some samples together from splice and rearrange things and call it art but it's really the long road and that delving deep in oneself and the right. hours that the musicians you know these 
classic records, these great records that we love that have stood the test of time, um, not fads that come in and out with trendy sounds and stuff, uh, the ones that have stuck around, every point in the chain has had that level of quality control. You're right. You know, the pro- from the right. rehearsing, yep. the production, the musicians taking it all the way through. And one of the producers that I looked look up to and I did a sound alike of him, Mark Ronson, mm-hmm. he made, you know, Back to Black, uh, Amy Winehouse. And everybody says, hey, Matt, how did you make a classic record in, like, mm-hmm. today's times? And he said, that's the band. That's the band playing. Mm. Yeah, I've got... He uses analog gear and whatnot, but he's, you know... like and what a, a sweetheart of a guy to admit that. <laughs> to say, it, 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 as we were talking about earlier with great artists, he's not in, into it for the ego of it. He's not, not into it for him. the person going, yeah, it was all me. That was my ideas. Yeah, without me, it never would have happened. That's not Mark Ronson, and that's the reason Mark Ronson is successful. He's telling the truth. What Mark Ronson is is smart enough to recognize great players when he hears them mm. and smart enough to recognize great songs when he hears them and certainly he's smart enough to hear uh, experienced enough to have heard the the tremendous talent in Amy Winehouse in uh, 461 I do have an exercise with students it's their midterm exercise where I help them to go through the process of reading raw talent mm. reading raw talent mm. and learning to listen like a producer for what's good about it um, that there's an art to that. It'll take you half your career to be able to master. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask you, how do you draw out the best from an artist without getting in the way? It's like a chef who... Uh, it's very much like, like food. Like a chef who... <coughs> pardon me. Um, evaluates the quality of those raw inv- ingredients to determine how they should best go together and mm. in what proportions. Sometimes you'll think to yourself, I'm going to go to the farmer's market because I want to make a salad and the chief ingredient is going to be sorrel. And then you get to the farmer's market and the sorrel looks all wilty and everything. You don't want to <coughs> just commit to your idea and use the sorrel anyway. You want to change your mind. Mm. With musicians, you listen to them play, you listen to their gestures, you listen to what street they're on. Excuse me. What street they're on, which means their home base, you make something out of that. Mm. Make something out of what they do, not what out of what you want them to do. Feels like mm-hmm. as much of a, a technical ability is real emotional intelligence mm-hmm. involved in working with an artist like that. Yes, exactly. Um, emotional intelligence to recognize when you've pushed them too far or when you're not pushing them far enough. You have to be able to imagine their parameters when you're working with a musician. Here you are, drummer, got this beat going on. You're not in the pocket. I have to be able to extrapolate from where you are to where I think you need to be and to do the math mentally in my head to figure out in this four-hour session, can I get you there? If the answer is no, I've got to change my mind about Mm. what it is we're doing because it's going to be really foolish and a time waster of me if I go ahead and record you not hitting that beat and then i got to spend the next three days editing it and trying to make it sound like you played it. Stop. 
what do you play? If you can't play what I want, what do you want? What do you play? All right, get in that zone. Play what you play, and then let me see what I can make out of that. Mm. Let me adjust the bass player and see if the bass player is responsive enough to fill in some of what you're missing there. Maybe our piano player is a bit percussive and can actually lay down a tighter pocket than what the drummer is doing. Maybe we want the drummer to play orchestrally instead of rhythmic as rhythmically as what I had originally intended. You're listening and you're manipulating these ingredients. Okay, I had wanted to make a tomato soup, but the tomatoes aren't looking too good. Uh, I'll have a tomato in it, but I'm going to use something else to be the main flavor in this soup. I have to, because otherwise it's going to taste like crap. So that's learning to hear like a producer, and um, trust me on this when I say it. There's no better teacher than life itself. You just have to get out there and experience life. Mm. You just have to do it over and over and over again. And listen to a lot of records to see how other producers have done it, and to form that mental library of what good is. Greg Wells, a friend of mine who's a very successful record producer, Greg came here about three years ago and gave an open talk, and he said to the students, you guys, sitting here today, you have no idea how good good is. Good is really good. Out there, in the commercial world, Stupid good. Stupid good. Jaw-droppingly good. So if you think you're going to get in the studio and play a half-assed performance and be competitive, you're living in a dream world. You have to be really, really good. Because you're saying that what you want to do is like saying, I want to be a pro athlete. Anybody can stand on a basketball court and sink a few balls. Go ahead. Get in there with the Lakers. Go ahead. Go ahead and see how well you do. Mm. This is what our musicians are setting themselves up for, to do this competitively and for money. Mm. Competition's really good. My job as a producer is to help people assess their strengths and weaknesses and to help get them there. Honestly, mm. in, 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 without bullshitting them or stroking their egos and making them think they're better than what they actually are. They're getting ready to play a tough game. I can't, um, I can't be dainty with them. Mm. So it sounds like the role of the producer, you spoke earlier that um, finding your team, you have an artistic vision, a visionary of sorts, and then the person who can do the groundwork and then the person who can do the promotion and then the competitor to keep you on your feet. Mm -hmm. And almost being a producer is having all of those internally as well. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to, even though it might not naturally be the street you live on or your strength, you do have to remind your clients that this is a competitive endeavor. You have to, so you have to be able to push them like a bully would, mm -hmm. and you have to have some competitive streak yourself. I, mean, I did. Uh, it wasn't my strength, but I had it. I, mean, I wanted to sell more records than the next producer, of course. And you have to have, uh, to some extent, your finger to the wind of what... Um, the culture and society is craving. Uh, you, you have to you have to be sensitive to lyrics and the right message and things like that. You don't want to be overly sensitive to it because we're talking about art here, but you need to be aware of it. Mm. If your singer has just written a lyric that is going to offend half the population, maybe it's offensive to women or something like that, it's your job, producer, to say so. This mm. lyric is not going to fly out there in the marketplace of ideas. You will be labeled asshole. Is this what you're going for? Let's make mm. sure we've explored this. That's the producer's job. Mm. You spoke about women 
Why do you think that a record producer or engineer typically hasn't been a popular choice of career generally for for women? That's a great question. First, uh, to comment on Neil Portnow, who was the head of NARIS, the Recording Academy. I was in New York uh, for a NARIS, I'm a member of the, the Academy, uh, for a meeting of the Producers and Engineers Wing, and uh, Neil Portnow was supposed to be at our meeting, but he couldn't because he had made that statement the night before, and he was busy taking the flack from the press for having made that statement. Because he made the statement about women need to step up, uh, he actually had to step down, and he, he resigned his post as the head of the Recording Academy. It was really a shame because when they stick that microphone in your face live and you say a sentence or two, that now is part of the public record. And it's not what he meant. Mm. What he meant was um, women are welcome. All they have to do is do the same caliber of work. Even that, if he had said it like that, it still would have been mildly offensive because, and as I said at this meeting of 40 producers and engineers the next morning, I said, I've been stepping up for 40 years. I started in this business in 1978. It's now 2018. I'm standing. 40 years yeah. I've been bringing it. Several of us have, but there's a huge difference between men and women in one thing, and that's how long it takes us to reproduce. Men can reproduce in a matter of minutes. If a woman is going to reproduce, it takes her a minimum of nine months, and let's go ahead and just add a few years onto that, because that little organism that has just come out of her body is now biologically dependent on her. This is where we split off. We've got the same mind, we've got the same motives and drives and ambitions and the same ability. That's all similar, the, the same thing. But in our society, in our 30s, just when we're getting traction on our career, that's when the clock is running out on women and their ability to reproduce. Men can keep going into their 70s. Women can't. Mm. So a lot of women will then leave the business in order to have children. Mm. Difficult choice to make, but that's not the fault of men or society. That's, that's biology, and that's just kind of how it works. Many of us who were successful, myself and Leanne and Sylvia Massey and Leslie Ann Jones, we don't have kids. We didn't make that choice, so we just kept right on going. Mm. Um, there's that, and then there's the second issue, and this one pisses me off, but as of yet, men are rewarded by society for a single-minded, myopic, blinders-on pursuit of a career. If you marry a man like that, you're considered a lucky woman. If that guy's your dad, you're considered a lucky kid. Because look at dad, look at dad, he's working so hard. Put a roof over our heads, food on our table. What a good dad, what a good husband. Yay for this guy, look how great he is. Now flip the gender. A woman who has a single-minded, blinders-on, myopic pursuit of success in her career is considered a really bad investment as a wife and mother. It's assumed she's not going to be able to take care of the kids. She's not going to be able to keep the home fires burning for you when you get home from work. So society rewards men who pursue their careers, and they kind of raise that hairy eyeball, or eyebrow with women who, who do the exact same thing. Now, your generation of young men are like uh, 
no, we don't do that. You know, we love the girls who, uh, who have that same ambition. Wait till it's time to get married. Wait till it's time to look for a wife. Are you going to be looking at someone who works just as hard as you? For a wife, maybe. What about for mother for your kids? Biology, evolution will kick in. And the traits that you find attractive, if you are a really ambitious, career-driven man, the traits that you find attractive in a woman are likely to be the traits of nurturing and mothering and building a home. So we women have that working against us, unfortunately. We're not rewarded for pursuing the same thing um, in our society that men pursue. Uh, makes it harder for us. It makes it harder. You're saying that it's hard for reproducers to be producers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can produce or you can reproduce. Take your choice, <laughs> girls. Take your choice. <laughs> Yeah, it's we've got we ladies have we've got a challenge. Mm. We've got a challenge. We're you know we're working on it, but it's a tough one. And and I don't ever want to pretend that it's not. It's not that men are shutting us out and aren't letting us be there. No, all the big breaks I've had in my career have been from men. People who taught me were men, uh, and that was forty years ago. Mm. Um, so th- that's not the problem. Mm. Yeah, it's funny how much. Our evolutionary instinctual like mechanisms have more impact on our life than we would give the credit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those things are always in effect. Yeah. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to run. Thank you Uh, so much. It's been so much fun talking. Well, that's all, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the Oxford University podcast, the show that delves deep into the tools and techniques to amplify your sound. On next week's episode, we talk to Pat Patterson, writer of Songwriting Without Boundaries and Writing Better Lyrics. I've read Songwriting Without Boundaries and got a lot of benefit from it. And he shares a lot of practical wisdom about sense-bound writing. And he was also the songwriting mentor for John Mayer. So stay tuned for that. See you next week.